there are so many ways uh, to connect with people these days. Um, there's texting or phone calls or Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or YouTube comments. There's just all these different ways we can connect with people. And you can get up in the morning and never get out of your pajamas and connect with hundreds of people just from your bed or your, your couch or whatever it is. And yet, at the same time, researchers and psychologists talk about a loneliness epidemic. Has anybody heard that term? There's a loneliness epidemic. Like People are getting more and more lonely than ever before. Um, and some of it's tied to uh, sometimes phones are like, oh, I'm so connected because I have this device that connects me on Instagram and Facebook and texting. I'm always connected to people. I'm talking to people. And yet, people that um, use their phones the most sometimes can be the most lonely of all, even though it seems like they're most connected. Um, so despite so many ways to be connected, people are still feel lonely. But this extends even beyond social media. We could you know, talk all day about social media and how that's changed you know, our lives and how we interact with people. But um, you can feel alone in a marriage. Um, you can feel alone in a family, like family gathering of just your nuclear family or an extended family gathering. You're just like, man, I just kind of feel alone here and out of place. Or you can feel alone at work. You can even feel alone in a crowd. You could feel alone here tonight. Like, I just feel so alone. Um, there could be things in your life that nobody else knows about. That, you, know, you could have, you feel like nobody around you understands me, nobody gets it, and I just feel alone. Um, so we can feel alone um, even when we're not you know, alone physically. So we're just going to think a little bit about the more positive side of that. What makes us not feel alone in life? Like What makes you feel like, yeah, people are with me and I'm not alone? What are, what's required for us to feel that way? Happiness. What was that? Happy. Happy. So if you weren't alone, you would feel happy? Like, yeah. So what would make you feel not alone, though, to lead to that happy feeling? Wait, wait. I miss, I, I miss well, That's okay. That you feel not alone. Fellowship. Fellowship, yeah. Happy would be an outcome. That's a good yeah. point. But what would lead us to not feel alone? So fellowship people around you? Pray. Hmm? Pray. Praying, yeah. Helps you not feel alone? There's like a, I don't know if there's a good one word, but like the intentionality of somebody knows like, hey, how did your soccer game go? Or like somebody knowing <laughs> something and then following up. So. so People knowing and following up. Yeah. I think to add on with the praying, like knowing that you have people praying for you and knowing that you have people asking you for prayer as well. People praying for you? What was the second part? Like people asking you to pray for them. Uh, you praying for others. Mm -hmm. Kind of an interconnectedness there. Mm -hmm. uh, being on the same team, someone else, so sharing same kind of goals and values and mission. One team sharing goals, value, mission, purpose. Somebody knowing your story and like bringing it up when something's happening. Like, hey, this reminds me of when this happened. Maybe, uh, known and remembered. Maybe trouble. 
How so? You know, if you're going through something really hard and someone offers you help, you're like, you almost cry, you know, like, Oh, so when you're in trouble, people offer help. Okay. Being loved. Being loved. Think about the five love languages. So feeling, experiencing love. Anything else that is on the tip of your tongue about what helps us not feel alone? Connecting. Connecting? Mm-hmm. So having like a real connection, not just like breezing by people? Like a WhatsApp connection? Yeah. <laughs> she missed the no phone thing. Oh, no phone. She did. No, no, no. Well, no, but, the, but it's a good point because technology, we can, the lie we can believe is like quantity the quantity of people I'm connecting, I have connected to me is like, oh, that's going to make me feel not alone. But it's really quality. You can have quality connections over technology, too. It's not, you know, all bad. Don't throw the baby off the bathwater. Because I have a friend from seminary, and we talk over, like, you know, one of those video things um, every week. And, like, I think, you know, half the time we, you know, thank God that well, this wouldn't even be possible without this technology. So we feel like we have a real connection there. Or it would have been possible, but... 10, 15 years ago, it would have taken a week to mail the letter yeah. and correspond yeah. and mm-hmm. snail mail. So technology can like speed up our connections, but it can also make us feel fakely, you know, fake connected kind of ways. But um, to summarize some of the things up there, <coughs> being listened to. Mm-hmm. Being listened to. Axel doesn't feel lonely when he's held all the time. Respect to the hug. Hurt and help. (laughs) And hug. There we go. Any more H's? (laughs) That's it. Uh, Well, as we're continuing this beginning the journey home series in the book of Genesis, we're ending nearing the end of Abraham's life. Um, And we started off when he was 75 years old. He just turned 100 in the past for a reading today. And then we're only going to have two more more weeks with Abraham, and then we're going to move on um, to his son Isaac. Um, But as we've been walking with Abraham, we've seen the high points and the low points of his faith. Sometimes he acts with great trust, and sometimes he acts like God doesn't even exist. And it's like, wait, wait. How are you acting like this when you were just told this by God? Like, how are you, you know, acting in these two different ways? And our passage today is like this sandwich. At the beginning of the end of it, there's this guy named Abimelech who whom Abraham interacts with. Um, and Abimelech puts his finger on two defining realities in Abraham's life. And it's God is with him in all that he does. That's what he says near the end. And yet Abraham is constantly acting like God isn't. So Abraham, God is with Abraham in all that he does, and yet Abraham constantly acts like God isn't. Because in chapter 21, verse 22, Abraham, Abimelech tells Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. And yet back in chapter 20, his interaction with Abimelech, he just acts completely like God isn't even there at all. And maybe, I'd imagine, that you can relate. Because don't we often have the promises of God in our head, but aren't believing them in our heart, and therefore acting on them with our hands. And we hear Jesus say, well, don't be anxious about your housing or your clothing or your food. And we hear him say that, and yet in the next moment we're worrying about where the next, you know, how the next bill is getting paid or how much money we have. 
And God tells us that if we believe in Jesus, we're washed clean of our sins and all of our guilt is gone. And yet, we still often try to pay for our sins with our own good deeds instead of believing that it's already paid for. And even though God tells us that he's never going to leave us, he's never going to forsake us, we often act like he's nowhere around and isn't available to help us. And so we have these promises that we hear from God, and yet we often act um, the opposite of them. We try to uh, often figure out everything else on our own, um, and maybe in desperation we finally go to him, even though he tells us, I'm here for you. And the truth is, if we've trusted in Jesus, God has sent um, his spirit to dwell in us. We all were um, an unworthy dwelling for God's spirit, but Jesus paid for our sin and washed us clean, and now we're a fit dwelling for God's spirit. So God's very own personal presence comes to dwell inside of us, to empower us, to guide us, to comfort us. The Holy Spirit, Jesus calls a counselor. Um, he comes to counsel us and lead us. Um, and Jesus actually says, there's a book I just read, it's called Jesus Continued, Why uh, the Spirit Inside You is Better Than Jesus Beside You. And we might think, like, if only Jesus was just here to tell me what to do and guide me and help me and, you know, tell me all these good things that I need to hear and promises and remind me of what he's done. And Jesus actually, he's the one who says that. He's like, it's better that I leave because then I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, who's the other counselor. And now he can, Jesus can always be with us instead of like, if he's always with me, he's not going to always be with Larry unless Larry's always with me, you know. So it's like if Jesus is physically here, he couldn't send his spirit. And the big question this passage answers is, how should having God with us make a difference? How should having God with us make a difference? How should having God with us make a difference? We'll cover this passage in four parts. There's Abimelech, Isaac, Ishmael, Abimelech. It's like this little sandwich. And we'll start with the first story of Abimelech in chapter 20. It's not even. It's kind of like a big chunk of bread and then two little slices of cheese and then like this little weak piece of bread. But uh, chapter 20 is Abimelech. Um, and in chapter 20, it kind of feels like deja vu. And if you're feeling that way, you aren't crazy. Because um, this whole situation has happened once before, 25 years earlier, back in Genesis chapter 12. There's the first story about Abraham we had right after uh, God called him. In Egypt, Abraham told Pharaoh that his wife, Sarah, was his sister because he's like, oh, you know, this isn't going to go well if they know you're my, my wife, and so tell them you're my sister so it can go well for me. And now, again, he's doing the same thing. Entering Abimelech's land, Abram says, you know, says, you know, please tell him that you're my sister, not my wife. But it seems even more foolish now because both times Sarah gets taken into the king's harem to be one of his wives or, or concubines, and so now, I mean, you know what, what a king's going to do with concubines and wives. He's putting at risk this promise that God has given him that I'm going to make a great nation through you. But now he's given his wife over um, to some other guy so that she can, or he can have relations with um, his wife. Um, and here he's doing it just months after God told him that within a year, Sarah's going to give birth to a son. And now just months later, he's giving his wife over um, to be with this other man, um, risking that she could get pregnant by this other guy. And so even though they're so close to having this child, he risked it all with this other man sleeping with his wife. And God intervenes by speaking to Abimelech in a dream, um, comes to him and, and, and warns him about this. And we this happens a number of occasions in the Bible where God speaks through dreams. And actually there's lots of accounts of it happening today, especially in um, other countries like Muslim countries where missionaries will be there and they'll have some person come up to them and be like, 
um, I had this dream last night where I was told to come speak to you, and here I am talking to you. And then they're like, oh, I guess I'm supposed to tell you about Jesus and tell them about Jesus. Or uh, there's a book, um, what's it called, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And it's that guy, didn't he have a dream of some sort like that? Like he thought Three he saw, dreams, yeah. yeah, several dreams of like this guy who came to Christ through God speaking to him with, uh, through these dreams. And so this happens today still. But look at what God says to Abimelech in verse 3, chapter 20. He comes and says, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you've taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, and then it says, Now Abimelech had not approached her. And so he says to him, uh, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And then God responds, well, yes, I know that you've done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So God warns Abimelech through this dream, and Abimelech says, well, I'm, I'm innocent. Um, I haven't done anything. You're going to kill an innocent person? We learned last week. Um, no, the the judge of all the earth will always do what is just. So, of course, God's not going to be like, hey, I heard this, and I'm just going to lop you off now. It's like, no, God knows what's going on, but he's you know, interacting with Abimelech so he can know this is serious stuff. Um, and it's interesting that God says, well, actually, I know you're innocent because I'm the one who kept you from sinning against me. So God's the one that kept them from sinning. And he actually says it would have been against me, not against Abraham or against Sarah. And it's important for us to remember David in the famous Psalm, Psalm 51, he, he commits adultery and murders that, that person's husband. And then he says, against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned. And something that the Bible expresses that all sin, um, all our selfishness, all our failure to love another person, God is always the most offended party. It's a sin first and foremost against him because he's the one who he instructed us in that. And so when we say, you know, I'm not going to do that, well, he's the one who told us to do it, and so he's always the most offended um, when we, in our behavior against other people. And God's instructions are to turn Abram's wife and then ask Abram to pray for him because he's a prophet. And, and Abimelech responds by calling his servants together, and he tells them, and they're just all afraid. They're freaking out. And so next he calls Abram to him and asks, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? You've done to me things that ought not to be done. What did you see that you did this thing? And then Abram's response is pretty weak. He says in verse 11, Well, I did it because I thought, There's no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, save me. He is my brother. And Abram reveals that right after God called him to leave his father's house, back in Genesis 12, he made this plan with Sarah. Whenever we go, tell people you're my sister. Don't tell them that you're my wife. And who knows? I mean, we've only know of two places that he, they had to enact this plan. Maybe there's more. Maybe it was just these two occasions that it came up. Um, but that's, and he's like, and you know, it's, it, she's my half-sister, so it's only like half a lie. Um, so, you know, that's okay. That's, <laughs> you know, give me a break here. Um, but Abraham is not presenting himself as a man um, who's trusting in God in these situations. But the reason he's telling this lie is even worse. He says it's because he doesn't think there's any fear of God 
in that place. Abram doesn't think that these people he's with believe God, believe in God, respect God, or care about God. And so he's, what does he do? Well, he stops trusting God. He stops fearing God. He stops putting his faith in God. He says, you know, these people aren't, and so I'm afraid, and so I'm going to come up with my own you know, half-lie plan. And just think about how often do we do the same thing? How often do we change the way we act, the way we talk, based on the people that we are around? So do you talk and act differently around church people than you do with your friends? Or do you talk and act differently here than when you are at work? Or how about when you're at home or when no one is around? It's easy um, in different situations to act and talk differently um, than we would um, with another group of people. And the big question this passage answered is, how should having God with us make a difference? And the first answer is, we can be confident in the face of fear. We can be confident in the face of fear. Having God with us makes a difference because we can be confident in the face of fear. And when Larry and I met in our gospel fluency group to discuss this passage a couple weeks ago, he pointed out that God is present even in the places where we say, well, there's no fear of God in this place. And, but that doesn't mean that God isn't there, that God isn't present, that he isn't with us, that he couldn't do something in that place. And Abram is afraid because he thinks that he's, these people he's going to interact with don't fear God. So instead of being a blessing to them, like God called them to be, instead of helping them get closer to God, actually he puts them in a place to create a great sin, a place to commit adultery. And that's not like, you know, it's not like we're the only ones that cared about adultery. Like that was a big deal in that time. Like you don't, this wasn't something you do. This was not just like, oh, whoopsie. Um, they were, this was like, he's putting them even Abimelech says, why would you put me in this position to commit this great sin? What did we do to you that you would do this? And so instead of leading them closer to God, he puts them in a position to get further from God. And when we fear people more than God, we do the same thing because we're blessed with the presence of God in our lives and to be a blessing to other people. And we're sent with God's presence to invite others into a relationship with him to help them go close, grow closer to him. And sometimes that's just seeing um, what God is like through our actions and through our character when we act differently around people who don't believe in him, we're doing the opposite. And we need to remember that whether we're with church people, family, coworkers, or friends, God is with us in every single one of those circumstances. And we shouldn't change how we act or talk depending on who we're around. I mean, of course, we don't just you know lay out all of our, our feelings and the, our deepest hurts and struggles to somebody that um, hasn't gained our trust, like I'm not dumping that on the breezes at Starbucks, like, how's it going today? Well, you know, I had a, you know, another conflict with Katie, and, you know, it was busted, you know, breakdown crying, and no, that's not how it works, that's not what I'm saying, it's just like, we should act in a different way and filter God um, out of our talk and out of our um, conversations, depending on who we're around, and our language and our, our jokes and what we talk about shouldn't be more or less honoring to God, depending on who um, we're with because it can be easy like okay well now I'm at work and you know gossip's fine but I'm going to avoid that at church or you know well let's all you know let's all complain about our boss like let's do that it's like well if that's not something we're supposed to do it shouldn't matter where we are or who we're with um, we shouldn't like God's with us we don't have to be afraid of people like oh you're not going to you know gossip with us look at who you are and it's like well I'm, I'm pleasing the God who's with me and that's who I'm looking out for and a couple of years ago Katie pointed out how it's really easy to filter out um, how we talk when we're with people who don't share our beliefs. And when another believer asks, well, how's your week going? Um, 
we might answer by saying, well, God's teaching me a lot this week and helping my attitude. Or we might say, oh, man, it's really a struggle this week, um, but I'm looking, you know, praying a lot. Would you please pray for me too? Um, but then when someone who we aren't sure shares our beliefs, asks how we're doing, we filter all those God parts out of it um, and share, like, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay. Or we might say the beginning part, well, you know, it's a tough week. Um, and we just filter out God from the conversation. And we can make telling others about Jesus a lot easier. This is an area of growth for me by, by simply being ourselves around them. Um, just being ourselves and see who responds. Don't filter God out. And that doesn't mean you're like you're pushing your beliefs on somebody all the time. Like, oh, guess what? You've got to believe in God too. It's just how you're doing. It's like, you know, I, I'm on, you know, you just say, like, I'm having a hard week. I'm having a hard time um, in this situation. I'm really looking to God. Or like, oh, it's been a great week. God's really blessed me. You're like, man, I'm really getting hit by you know, God's forgiveness right now. And somebody asks, how's it going? It's like, oh, you know, why not share something about what God's teaching you or doing in your life? Um, because other people don't filter their opinions and beliefs when they talk. Um, and we don't either, except when it comes to God. You know, we'll share our opinions and beliefs about the Packers or the Bears or whatever it is, but then we don't filter those up, but we'll filter out our opinions and beliefs about God. And so we're all sharing those um, no matter what, it just depends on which ones we leave out. But if you think about situations like that, which four G's would help you, or which four G's might have helped Abraham? Which you know, these are, um, if you're not familiar with these, these are four um, character traits of God uh, that can help us to repent and believe the good news. So which of these would help in those types of situations where you're like, I'm, I'm not sure if these people believe, so I'm going to like filter God out. What would help you to not filter? God is glorious, so I don't have to fear others, like, what they're going to, you know, Jesus, if I say that, what are they going to think of me, or mm -hmm. what are they going to say, or, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, what are they going to say to my face, what are they going to say behind my back, are they going to think I'm a weirdo, you know. Mm -hmm. I think getting approval of other, from others is, like, a form of satisfaction, so God is good. Mm. <coughs> satisfaction from people approving of us or liking us. Yeah, we've got like this tank of satisfaction or whatever, and it's like, oh, they're going to fill it up a little bit if they like me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Any others that would be helpful? God is great. I don't have to be in control. Mm. Yeah, because we might be like what'll happen if I say this? That's usually what we're scared of. Like, what's going to happen? Like, well, God's great, so I don't have to be in control of what happens. I'm just going to please Him. You know? Any others? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, I think the no. God is good, like, God is gracious, is kind of like, uh, kind of one and the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we don't have to prove ourselves. To this other person, you know, God is, God loves me, so I don't have mm -hmm. to prove myself to them. Or saying the right thing, so I'm just like, oh, what if I say the wrong thing? I say, well, I don't have to prove myself to God. He loves me either way. So, well, Abimelech does all he can to make the situation right. Um, he gives gifts to demonstrate Sarah's innocence, and a thousand shekels of silver was a ton of money, like, just a lot of money. And so he's like, I just want to make sure that everyone sees, you know, Sarah, I did not touch you, like, you're... You're innocent, 
and nothing happened. And afterwards, Abram does pray for Abimelech, and he gets healed. We discover that they, the women weren't able to get pregnant. God had closed the wombs. Um, and then this prepares us for the birth of Isaac in chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. So that was our big triple, quadruple, whatever, multi-grain piece of bread on the bottom. Now we get our little piece of ham. So, um, in, so 21 um, it takes us uh, to Sarah now. Um, Fifteen years ago, uh, Sarah had said to Abraham, Behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. And then she made her own plan for having kids and had Abraham sleep with her maidservant Hagar. And one year ago, God had come to Abraham and said, This time next year, I'm going to come visit you and Sarah, and she's going to be pregnant. And then both of them laugh at him. And God said, Is anything too hard for the Lord? They're focused on their inability, um, looking at themselves, rather than being focused on God's ability and power to do anything. And now the time has got, come. God has come through just as he said he would. And Sarah um, gives birth to a son and they name him Isaac, just like God told them to. And Isaac means he laughs. And so they had isaac at God when he said, you're going, to be, you're going to be pregnant. And now Sarah says in verse 6 of chapter 21, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So Sarah, Isaac, did God in unbelief, and now she, Isaac's with joy because God has done as he said he would do. And every time she calls her boy Isaac you know, to the dinner table, she'd be reminded, God turned my laughter, my Isaac of unbelief, into a laughter of joy every time she calls his name. And the big question the passage answered is, how should having God with us make a difference? And the second answer is, we can be confident he won't fail, fail us. We can be confident he won't fail us. That's the difference it makes, having God with us. We can be confident he won't fail us. And we'll come back to that and talk about it more in a minute. So Sarah laughs with joy, but someone also laughs. And so let's turn to Ishmael in verses 8 through 21. You know, if Isaac was the ham, Ishmael's now the cheese. No pun or anything intended. But So verse 8 tells us that Isaac grew when he's weaned from breastfeeding. And this probably would have happened about three years old. Um, in that culture and time. And there would have been this great celebration with the feast. But verse 9 tells us that not everyone is celebrating. It says this, But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. Hagar's son, Ishmael, is laughing in this mocking, looking down way. And Sarah's not happy. This is a day of celebration, celebrating her son, Isaac, who's just been weaned. And now Ishmael... Um, the son that Abraham had with Hagar, Sarah's maidservant, is laughing in contempt. And she tells Abraham, cast out the slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Abraham was very displeased with the solution because Ishmael is his son, after all. He had her, him with uh, Hagar. But God tells him, well, go along with it, give them water, um, <clears throat> I'm going to take care of them. And he assures them, you're going to become... Um, you know, Ishmael is going to be okay, and so, but Isaac is the one who's going to receive the promises I've given to you uh, after you. He's going to be the heir of all these promises and whatnot. Ishmael isn't going to be. And so Abram loads him up with supplies, says goodbye to his son, and sends them off into the wilderness. But on the journey, Hagar and Ishmael run out of water, and Ishmael is 14 year old, years old at this point, but apparently he's just so, I don't know, exhausted that he can't even carry himself. And so Hagar puts him under a bush in the shade, 
And she cries because she thinks, I'm going to watch my son die. We have no water. We're in the middle of the wilderness. What are we going to do? And so, um, but God hears Ishmael and speaks to Hagar and points out, no, I'm going to take care of you guys. There's a well over here. Go to that. Um, and Ishmael's name means God hears. And he received that name because earlier God had heard Hagar's cries um, and then God came and, and spoke with her. And now he hears again. And last time he said, you need to go back to Abram and Sarah. She had run away. And she, he says, you need to go back and submit to her. Um, but now uh, he doesn't tell her that. And she's like, no, you can live out here. Like, here's what's going to be the future for Ishmael. And before, I mean, if you think about it, she was pregnant before. Who knows? I don't know how old she was. She might have been really young. Um, but she was pregnant without anybody helping her. Abraham and Sarah were her livelihood, basically. You know, they're going to provide for her. But now, her son's old enough. We learn that he becomes an expert with the bow. He can provide for them um, and get them food and, and stuff. And so, and then eventually she takes a wife for him. And the big question this passage answers is, how should having God with us make a difference? And the third answer is, we can be confident he knows what he's doing. We can be confident he knows what he's doing. Because this whole situation with Hagar and Ishmael, where Sarah's feeling upset about it, and Abraham's displeased, and they have, he has to send one of his sons away from him, um, this is all a problem of Sarah's own making. Because she thought, you know, God's failed me. Um, and God doesn't know what he's doing. And then so she made her own way. She said, Abraham, sleep with Hagar. Um, maybe that's how we'll have kids. Instead of waiting on God, instead of asking God um, what's going on, what's, up, what's the holdup, um, she just makes her own plan. And, and it doesn't bring her happiness ever. And in fact, 14 years later, when she's celebrating finally having a son, um, the party, there's this damper put on it because she has this reminder, oh, this is what happened when I didn't believe God. Um, when I believe something was you know, too hard for him. And so she's reminded of that as her maidservant um, laughs at Isaac, her son who she's celebrating um, in contempt and pride. We can filter God out of her actions and, and speech in front of other people, but we can also filter him out in our everyday situations. Sarah believed God had failed her and didn't know what he was doing, and so she took matters into her own hands and tried it her own way with Hagar. Um, and when we believe God has failed us, and or doesn't know what he's doing, we will try to do it our own way, and the results will probably bring us problems just like they did to Sarah. From, so think about what are the areas of your life um, where God is filtered out, where um, God isn't on your mind when you're in those situations or when you're with those people um, or you know, in, um, in whatever it is. And one area for me is when I spend time with my family for the holidays. Um, all of us probably, all of us grew up in families that were not perfect. And so that means there's sin patterns um, in those families of like, oh, you know, we always talk to mom this way. Or, oh, we always, you know, do, you know we always do these jokes with each other that kind of hurt the other person. Or, we, you know, don't say sorry or whatever it is. Um, and I noticed oftentimes I would get done at, a, you know, three or four days in my parents' house with my sister and her family. And all of a sudden it's like, Wow, I didn't didn't read my Bible at all. I didn't pray at all. I wasn't even thinking about what God wanted in this situation. It's almost like this weird, like it's like if you're thinking about my calendar of like November, it's like do to do. God's on every single day, and then there's a four week break for Thanksgiving, um, and then okay, He's on my mind the rest of the month, and it's like that's kind of like this weird gray area in my life, and 
I'm time with my family is when I need to remember that God is with me in my family, and He can help me overcome um, those sin patterns and hurts with my family, and He can make us new, each each and every one of us new. Another area for me is when I'm in conflict with Katie. Pleasing God is usually the last thing on my mind when I'm in conflict with Katie. I'm focused on me um, and what she did wrong and how I can prove that what I did wrong wasn't really wrong. And I often forget to pray and sometimes don't even want to. And so that's an area where I need to remember, you know, God is with me. He's with Katie. He's with us. I'm here to help us in this situation, to show, help us show grace and mercy and gentleness and patience to each other. And it's, it's kind of like um, when the teacher leaves the classroom, um, what are the students going to do? You know, are they going to behave? Or what's, what's going to happen? It's like, okay, what are those situations in our life where it's like we don't think about God? I mean, we're not thinking about God. It's kind of like teachers left the classroom. Like, how do we behave in those situations? Usually it's not in a great way. Um, and so what's in an area for you where God gets filtered out? What's an area of life where you don't ask him for help or think what he wants you to do in that situation or that relationship? Because when we don't think God is around, we can tend to not act in ways that please him. When Abram has a second interaction with Abimelech at the end of chapter 21, Abimelech speaks those words um, that he probably needed to be reminded of um, all throughout his life. In verse 22 he says, God is with you in all that you do. Even when Abram didn't feel it or believe it, God had been with him in all that he did. Abimelech saw Abram's life and he could clearly see the hand of God on it. But often Abram couldn't see it. And by now he has a son Isaac who's living proof of God's love and faithfulness and grace and power to him. And in this conversation, Abimelech and Abram have this dispute over a well. Uh, and they end up making this treaty where Abraham is like, no, I dug this well. And Abimelech's like, yes, you did. And you know, they do some things to, to mem- commemorate it. And um, God has, this is actually Abraham's first legal claim to the land that God has promised him. Back in chapter 12, um, God promised you're going to have kids and you're going to have this land. He's, God has fulfilled the promise of having this child. And now God's going to grow this into a great nation. And now this is like the first little glimmer that, okay, this land that he said is going to be mine is mine. And so he plants this tree, and he calls on the name of the Lord, uh, worshiping him, and he calls him the everlasting God. And I kept wondering, why that name right here? Like, why is that the thing? And I don't want to make too much of, a, of it, but everlasting, you know, this isn't like the, um, when we think everlasting, we think, ooh, eternal, like all time, never ending. Um, and often it has a little bit, Um, That isn't to say that God isn't eternal. Often when it's applied to God, it does mean eternal, like he's always existed and never will end. But in this verse, it has a sense of like, he's ancient, he's existed a long time in the past. And it's kind of like Abram's looking back over his life and he sees, well, God has always been there. He's the everlasting God. There wasn't a moment when he wasn't there. He's always been with me. And perhaps too, he's now gaining confidence. The way he's always been there, and he always will be, and he can start to walk in faith. And actually we'll see that really come out in the next chapter, next week. But today, be changed by this truth. God is always with you. And it's even, as I think about that, it's even hard for me to like grasp in some ways. Like God is always with me, like dwelling inside me. Like I'm his you know, temple of his Holy Spirit. Like, and it's like, well, it often doesn't feel that way. I and mean, how do I even... 
interact with that. Like God is with me all the time. It's a it's a hard for us to grasp. But the truth of the Bible says if we've trusted in Jesus, he says he's always going to be with us. He's never going to leave us. He's never going to forsake us. And he gives us his personal pre presence to assure us of his love. And it's a down payment guaranteeing the future that he promises to us. And it, the Holy Spirit is such an important part of our life. And God is with you and all that you do. And so maybe just take your bulletin. And it's easy, you know, he says to Abraham, if you have a bulletin, grab your pen and just, he says to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Um, and so put your name in there. God is with Emma in all that she does. God is with Dan in all that she does. He does. <laughs> Thanks for your grace, Dan. <laughs> just write that. And maybe underline your name and maybe underline all all that you do. And that means you're never alone. Even if you feel alone and like nobody sees what you're doing or what you're going through, you're not alone. Even if you feel like you have to do it all yourself because nobody's there, you don't have to. God has given you his very own presence so that you are never alone. You're never without him. And all those things we wrote in here, um, these are all true for us. Um, once you've trusted in Jesus, this is all true for us because God is always with us. We are never alone. God knows us. He follows up with us. God is connected with us. God knows our story and he remembers it. Um, Jesus is interceding for us and then he gives us his, his spirit to um, let us know, I'm praying for you. When we're in trouble, he's always there to help and he hears us. Um, we have fellowship with them and we're God, the very love of God has been poured onto us. And we are on the same team. Jesus sent us on a mission. And he says, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. We're in this together. I'm in to do this with you. So we're never alone. We have the same problem as Abraham. God is with us in all that we do. And we constantly act like God isn't. And we constantly try to do things um, in our own power, by our own works, our own strength. And we often don't ask God for help. We're often afraid of other people, not thinking, like, well, God's with me, so why should I be afraid? And God is helping me. But what if we believe God was with us always in everything that we do? How would that change your everyday life? How would that change your work or your parenting or your days at school listening to your teachers? How would that change the mundane tasks of the day, like vacuuming and washing dishes and changing poopy diapers and doing English and math homework? Like, how would all that change you know, if God, we knew God is with me in this. He's closer than any friend I have. How would that change our interactions with our friends who may not care much about God? And what if we truly believe God is with us in every single one of those moments? And we see from Abraham and Sarah's life that when we believe God has left us, we will not make decisions that please him, or it's at least unlikely. And in addition, when we fail to believe God's promises to us, we will fail to fulfill God's purposes through us. So his promises to us, if we don't believe those, we're going to fail to fulfill his purposes through us. But even though we're prone to sin and weakness um, and failure and doubt, God sticks with us. And that's what he does with Abraham. We look over his life and it's like Abimelech can say, God is with you in all that you do. Um, and it's like, wow, you look, Abraham did not deserve that at all in everything we've studied about his life. 
Um, and we don't either. But Jesus is the one who cleanses of our sin to make us a fit dwelling for the Spirit of God. Because God doesn't go in the presence of sin. And Jesus cleanses us of that sin so that God can dwell in us. And, and, but we can think of the Spirit kind of like, you know, he's like our personal genie. And he's here to, like, fulfill our wishes. You know, God, help me do well in this test. Or God, help me not be nervous for this presentation. Or God, please let this police officer just write me a warning instead of a ticket. And it's like he's kind of like our little genie present with us. Like, ooh, he can just help me with all the things um, that are bothering me. Um, and God may very well help in those in instances. But that isn't the primary goal um, that the Spirit has in your life. His primary goal is to make you more like Jesus. And he's given us his Spirit for two things, to enable belief in his promises and to empower living for his purposes. To enable believing in his promises and to empower living for his purposes. Because we would never believe the promises of God. We would never believe um, 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians says, someone only says Jesus is Lord by the Spirit working in them. And so we would never believe all the things that are true for us in Christ if it wasn't for the Spirit. So he enables us, uh, he enables belief in God's promises. Um, but that at the same time, Jesus says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'm sending you my Spirit. So he empowers living for God's purposes as well. And the Spirit of God is given to us to do the will of God. And so if you're not feeling or sensing much of the Spirit in your life, it's perhaps because you're not living for the purposes or the will of God. As a church, we have three practices that sum up God's purposes for us as a church. First, God calls us to live as a family. The scripture talks about the spirit dwelling inside of us. Most often it talks about us, plural, a group of people. We are the temple of God. There's one instance where it says you, singular, are the temple of God. So the spirit dwells in us individually. But the spirit, we are most the temple of God when we are together. That's when the spirit's presence can most uh, be experienced. And so... Um, if, we, if you want to experience God's presence, we need to be with God's people. But it can be hard living as family with other people because when you do it long enough, they're going to fail you, disappoint you, hurt you, sin against you, maybe just annoy you. Man, they just cheer for the Packers too loud. That's me. Or Kate. No, Kate, it could be Katie. So, uh, but... And what happens when somebody hurts us or things get awkward or uncomfortable, we just often want to run away. That's what I want to do. Like, fine, I just won't talk to that person ever again. Um, and that's what we want to do. But that's not what God does with us. He, um, God sticks with us. Um, and so we can stick with one another. We don't, God doesn't remove our presence once he gives it to us. He never leaves us or forsakes us. And so we can show the world what our God is like by never leaving or forsaking one another for that reason, that somebody hurt me or it got weird or awkward or difficult or I'm just tired of dealing with that person. Like, we can show the world um, God's love for us. In John 13, 35, Jesus said that the world will know that we're his disciples by our love for one another. And the, it's extremely mission-oriented to love other Christians. And we can think, like, why are we wasting all our time living as a family together and, like, taking care of each other's needs and loving each other? I was like, we need to get out in the streets. It's like, no, Jesus said the world will know where his disciples by our love for one another. And so it's um, in a world where loneliness is an epidemic, we can give off this heavenly, otherworldly aroma by our unique togetherness um, that people say, like, I don't, that smells really good. I don't know what it is, but I would really like that. And it's something unlike you know, 
Well, I've never smelled anywhere else. That's a weird way to say it, but you know what I'm saying. Um, and as a family, we're also to love as servants. We take that aroma public by being a loving presence in people's lives. Inviting people to cookouts, you might be like, well, it's just a silly cookout. Like, are we going to get up and have somebody talk about Jesus at some point? It's like, well, you know, in a place where loneliness is an epidemic, um, it's maybe the first step that loving presence in somebody's life is like, hey, there's people here. You can be present with people. And even if they say no over and over again, they at least know, hey, this person came to me. They made themselves present to me and available to me. Um, so now maybe they go through a hard time. They're like, you know what, I don't know who to go to, but that person always came to my door every summer and invited me to that block party or, or whatever it is. And so I know I can go to that person. And in many situations, the best ministry you can give someone is what's called, I don't know where this came from, but it's called a ministry of presence. It's like you don't need to give advice, you don't need to solve it, you're just present. And 80% of ministry, I made this stat up, but most stats are made up. Um, just showing up is 80% of ministry. It's like he can ministry. say that because Katie's not in the room. That's right. Um, no, no, it's not. Um, you ever heard that quote? Like 70% of statistics are made up. You know, in that very moment, you're giving a made-up statistic. But anyway, so I made it up. 80% of ministry is just showing up. A ministry of presence. You know, somebody knowing that you care, and in going as messengers, this kind of loving presence um, demonstrates to people God's love which can give us an opportunity to actually tell them about God's love with our words. And people are not projects, um, so we want to tell them about Jesus, but it shows them great love when we don't remove our presence from their lives when they don't care about Jesus at all. Like, okay, well, moving on. You know, I finally shared the gospel with you. You said, no, I don't want that. Okay, moving on to the next person. Like, that's treating someone as a project. Um, so if you're worried, like, I don't want people to be projects, you know, we talk about sharing Jesus with people all the time, and that's not how I want to do it. I just want to, like, hang out with them. Um, and that's fine. We can be a loving presence, but you know, like take the filters off. Just be who you are and talk about God. You don't even have to be like, hey, you need to believe in God. Um, but if somebody's like, yeah, I'm not into that, um, don't remove your presence, and that still shows them that you're loving them. Um, and as we leave here this week, remember that God is with you in all that you do, and Jesus is the one who made that possible for the Holy Spirit to dwell in you. We're never alone in anything you do. Whatever situation right now that you're thinking, I'm alone in this. I just have to do it myself. No one's going to help me. Or maybe sometimes I think we have two different reactions or maybe multiple, at least two different. One is like, I'm alone, and so it's hopeless, and I despair. Or we say, I'm alone, so I just got to do this myself. If it's going to get done, I'm going to have to do it. And it's kind of like we go to one of them. But whichever one is you, whatever situation you feel like I'm, you're alone in, not. God is with you. And how life-transforming would it, would it be if we believed in every situation, God is with me, here to help me, empower me, protect me, comfort me, give me the words to say if necessary, um, to help me react. Um, that would be life-changing if we could believe that. Let's pray. Father, we're, we know that we're totally unworthy to be a temple of your presence. Each and every one of us has reasons we'd be disqualified from that by our own actions. And yet you've made us worthy by Jesus dying in our place. And you've given us this great gift. And this love the words of the song we're going to sing. You've given us pardon for sin. And you've given us your own presence to cheer us and to guide us. And we have strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow because of that. 
So you help us, Lord, live in light of that. It's your son's name we pray. Amen.